If we can turn to Psalm 42. Psalm 42. And it reads, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me, for I used to go along with the throng, the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God, and with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. O oh, my soul, O oh, my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and from the peaks of Hermon and from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime and his song will be with me in the night. A prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do you go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As the shattering of my bones, my adversaries reviled me. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God. For I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my case against an ungodly nation. Deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. For you are the God of my strength. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? O send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling places. Then I will go to the altar of God, the God my exceeding joy. And upon the lyre I shall praise you, O God, my God. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Father, thank you for your word, which is wonderful and great. Thank you for the Lamb that gives us access to your throne. Uh, be with us in these moments ahead that we can understand more about you and how we can encourage our souls to hope. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, here we are in part three and this series, on, which is entitled um, Highs, Lows, and Spiritual Renewal. Because of the reality that there are moments when we have highs, like we saw in 1 Kings 19 with Elijah on Mount Carmel, a great victory for the Lord. And then shortly after that, there is a low where Jezebel has threatened him, and now he is running um, from Jezebel. And we even notice how in that episode, how at one point in time, uh, Elijah ran for the Lord. Uh, because the hand of the Lord was upon him, grace was upon him, and then he ran from Jezebel. Um, both occasions he ran, but one was, if we might say, he ran in the flesh, he ran because of fear, and the other he ran by grace, and he ran because he feared God. There are moments of highs and lows. Even this morning, um, I, I tend to get up early, pretty early, and I go out for a run 
Uh, I call it my sort of pre-preaching run, if you will. Um, and um, some of you have been to our home, and you know how we have sort of the, uh, it kind of falls off a bit there, and a fairly good elevation. And as I was out running, and I was just looking at uh, the freeway beneath, and there was some construction going on, and there's one path that I take down that takes me, I, I think the elevation changed, I think I've, I've checked it on my Endemundo before. Um, I think it's about 150 feet uh, coming. You say, well, it's not much. Well, that's 15 stories. So that's a pretty good amount. I think it's about that. The bottom and then making my way back up to the top again. And there's a portion where I'm, I'm gasping for air and I'm looking at my heart rate. Um, and I, I do it a certain way to kind of get my heart rate really high. And I come down um, and I was up to about 155. Uh, which is pretty good. I like that. Um, and But my low heart rate, my resting heart rate, is pretty good for a guy with so many gray hairs. Um, it's about 52. That's pretty good. So, um, <clears throat> And that's one way that I try to keep it that way. Uh, but I experience the highs and the lows as I'm at the bottom. And I looked, okay, I've got to get back up there again. And getting back up there, I could feel it in my muscles, and I could see it in my heart rate. And I'm checking it and thinking, oh, my, um, I feel it right here pounding. But when I got to the top again, what a beautiful view. Then I can look back on the valley beneath me. And, um, you know, life can be that way as well. We go through life, and there we are in the valley, and we ask ourselves, I used to be there. that had that wonderful view. How do I get there again? But some of that has to do with hope from a spiritual standpoint, the reality that the Lord is with me. And even in the valley, and that's what we all need to understand. And it's not even so much understand. I think it's more so remind ourselves, because I doubt if there's anyone in here. There could be someone here that said, well, I don't understand how God is with us in the lows. I think we would all realize that he is with us in the lows. Is he not? Absolutely. He is with us in the valleys. And that same God that gives us that wonderful view on the highs and we can look back on the valleys and say, I used to be there, is the same God that's with us when we're actually in the valley. He is helping us. He is guiding us. And that's the beauty of even a series like this in some way in which we need to remind ourselves that in those lows in life, the Lord is still there. In those highs in life, the Lord is still there. And that's why it's such a disservice when people teach uh, uh, a, a misguided, which I've said before, um, a juvenile, uh, and even at times a heretical um, teaching that God is with us in those highs, and the reason we're in the low just simply has to do with our lack of faith. And if we would just pray properly or think properly or have enough faith, we can generate enough in ourselves to get back to the high again. But what we have to realize is that God in his sovereign plan also orchestrates the lows. See, God is saying, no, this is meant to be. You, you're going to stay there for a while. You're going to be in that valley for a while. Because I think we all know that in those valleys, we learn so many lessons, do we not? I mean, there are lessons to learn when we're in, in the highs and we, and we can look back and sort of have this panoramic view of all these things that are before us or maybe even behind us. But I think we all know some of the greatest lessons that we can learn is when we're in the valleys of life, in the lows. We tend to cling to the Lord more in the lows. We tend, 
We tend to look to him more in the lows. We tend to seek counsel more in the lows. And this is a part of God's design plan. So when we think about this series, life circumstances um, come to us. And sometimes those life circumstances can be challenging. But yet, in the end, if we look to the Lord, ultimately the greatness of God will overshadow them. Now, I, I want you to understand, because I said this last week as well, and I'll say it again. When I, so, when I say overshadow, I do not mean that when we look to the Lord, he will take them away. There's a difference. Overshadow means it gives us a perspective. God's grace, his majesty, his sovereignty is casting a shadow over whatever area we find ourselves right now. It is not taking them away. It's just the fact that we're reminded that we have grace in this low moment of life, and we should cling to that grace. Some would want to say, yes, if we look to the Lord, then he'll take all the moments away. And I'm says, no, he won't. If we look to the Lord, his shadow is cast over wherever we find ourselves, and we need to find ourselves resting in the shadow. As the scripture tells us that we rest in the shadow of his what? Of his wings. The temperature is going to change in a bit here in Southern California. We enjoy, I love this time of year, um, but at some point in time, especially where we live um, in Canyon Country, we're going to be topping it at 105, 107. And what do you look for when it's 105, 107 when you're outside? What do you, thank you. Why did you know that so well? You look for shade. And if maybe if you're waiting on someone, okay, boy, they're a little late. What are you going to do? Look for shade. And some of the basics, when you go to the parking lot, right, if you go to the mall, wherever it may go, you look for a spot that may have some what? Some shade. And you're thinking, okay, I'm going to be here for so many hours. The sun is going to move. So by the time, um, well, the earth is moving, but anyway, uh, (laughs) by the time I get back, the sun is going to be right here. Because we think about it, it's better there. And it doesn't mean that what? It's uh, because you may say in this area, it's actually only registering at about 95. But if you're outside of the shade, well, wow. It's hot. That's what we need to do. Seek the Lord. And in the midst of wherever we find ourselves, hope in the Lord and those highs and lows in life so that we can be spiritually renewed. So there's a need. Let me start with these thoughts. There is a need. And why is there a need? Because we live in a world that offers false hope. And not only does it offer false hope, but this world attacks our hope. It attacks our genuine hope. It attacks our belief system. It attacks our God. It attacks what we believe in. And if um, we don't understand that, we will find ourselves losing this battle. There's a world of false hope. There are many people right now today that are not on this campus. Some are on this campus that don't have hope. And there are many that are not on this campus and they're not on church campuses and they're living in the world and they have no real source of hope. You would think there's certain people that have us have hope because they, they're people that have a sense of character and tenacity Uh, They're bold people, courageous people, but not always. An interesting article um, entitled, Depressed NYPD with Few Outlets. I'll just read it. 
Hopelessness is the most motivating contributor to the suicide mindset. It is a sense that one doesn't have control over one's behavior, feelings, or circumstances. It is a resignation of the self to perceived external elements. A feeling of the hopelessness can be perceived by an officer from innumerable sources. It is not sudden. It grows slowly, unabated, until it becomes an insurmountable mindset. There is an unofficial progression in, quote, the job that police officers have noted in many cases, or police counselors, that is, have noted in many cases of police suicide and attempted suicide. The idealistic academy graduate turns into a depressed cop. And listen to this quote, graduates frequently exposed to blood, gore, and danger does not have um, the ability to share his burdens and the horrors of it with his his spouse. The spouse wouldn't understand. A few drinks with the guys after work to help unwind. Fellow cops don't understand. Can't trust civilians. Can't admit troubles even to fellow cops. I would be conceived as a wimp. Can't trust fellow cops. Drinks and drinking increases. Spouses take off. Gun is handy because of hopelessness. And the solutions that often people will give someone like that are not what we have. It's not what we offer. It's hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is distinct. It's different. It's eternal. It's meaningful. And we look at this psalm, Psalm 42 and 43, some questions come up about the author. I didn't um, tackle it last week because I wanted to get um, make that transition from 1 Kings 19 to here. So I sort of go back a little bit. Who is the author? Who are the sons of Korah? Well, the sons of Korah are those um, offspring from their father who rebelled against Moses. And obviously, they probably saw the, their father's folly and didn't stand with him. Therefore, the Lord gave them a prominent role in biblical history. You see the Korahites in 2 Chronicles 20, 19. Um, along with the Levites, they stood up to praise the Lord with a loud voice. You see it in 1 Chronicles 19 and 16. They're called the gatekeepers for the Lord. In 12, 16, they defended David. There are other Psalms associated with the sons of Korah. Psalms 44 to 49, Psalm 84, Psalm 87, Psalm 88. And I want us just for a moment, um, if you will, I believe it's, yes, it is um, 84. Look with me, 84. I just wanted us to look at it. I just thought about it because I love something that's communicated in Psalm 84. He says, verse 1, how lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. And then my heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Verse 3, even your altars, O Lord of hosts. How blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. And I really do love verse 10. Notice verse 10, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. And what's beautiful about that verse, think about the image that he's trying to create. He says, well, Lord, a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. 
one day in which I can come and I can lift up my heart and praise and honor to you. And as a matter of fact, uh, it is so preferable to be in your house. I would just as soon uh, be just at the threshold of the door of God than spend a thousand, to spend many days outside in the security that's offered by the world or the dwellings of the wicked. And he's creating a, a wonderful image for us. And it's really, as we were thinking about it, as you come into these doors and some people, I see them passing by here sometimes. And as they're passing by, as I'm teaching, they'll sort of hear just for a moment and they'll keep going. And some have stopped actually at the door and they'll listen without coming in and they'll move on. Maybe they're going to do some other ministry. And that's in part the image that he's giving us. It's saying, I just as soon be here sort of at the threshold of the door, and I can hear what is happening inside. I can hear praises being lifted up to the Lord. I don't even have to go in. That is preferable to being in the security of the dwellings of the wicked. In one sense, it's saying, well, you could go to the dwellings of the wicked, and there's security, and there's feasting, and there's their sort of music, and there's a comfort that you can have there, and you can sit down, and you can recline, and you can be catered to. No, I, I just as soon stand right here. And this is wonderful what's happening inside. Hear them praise the living God. Well, go inside. I don't need to. I just need to know that it's happening. And I could hear these praises being offered. This is a sort of hope that we have that our hope is built on this reality that we serve a God that is worthy to be praised. Now, go back to Psalm 42. Psalm 42, you notice that I read 42 and 43, and even as you see, or you saw earlier, Psalm 42, 43. It's not just Psalm 42, because it has to do with the structure of the Psalms itself. And I would see them as one unit together. And there's a refrain that takes place. What is that refrain? Uh, Notice verse 5. Why are you in despair? Verse 11, why are you in despair? And then into 43, why are you in despair? And this creates the connections between 42 and 43, and perhaps best just seeing them as one unit. And what we see happening in the psalm, really, is it unfolds hope and desiring God's presence. That's one to five, because he says here that he's panting, that he's thirsting in verses one and two, and then this call for hope. And then verses 6 through 11, hope and recalling God's faithfulness. God is a faithful God. Let me recall that faithfulness to myself. That's why he says in verse 6, I need to remember. And then in verse 11, I need to hope. And then in 43, it's 43, obviously 1 to 5, hope and waiting on God's justice. God will vindicate. So the psalmist cries out in verse 1, vindicate me, O Oh Lord, and then it ends with that refrain again, hope. So verse 5, he says, hope. Verse 11, hope. Then verse 5 again, hope. And what's the setting? Obviously, the psalmist is undergoing some difficulty. We don't know the particular incident um, exactly here, but we know just from the setting itself, he's facing um, persecution. Verse 7, notice what it says here. Deep calls to deep. At the sound of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. Now, what we should notice right away in verse 7 is this. Notice what it says. Whose waterfalls and whose breakers and whose waves? What does it say? It says your. God's sovereign hand is behind the difficulty. 
But then what's interesting in verse 8, which we'll tackle maybe in a couple weeks, he says, the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime. His song will be with me in the night. So we see God's sovereign hand at work. Verse 7, he's saying, your waterfalls and your breakers and your waves. Wait a minute, aren't you being persecuted by those who do not love the Lord? Yes, but a sovereign God is behind it. And that same sovereign God will direct his loving kindness towards me. And then we notice in verse 9 that even the psalmist is mourning. Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? We see that again in chapter 42, verse 2. He says, why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? In verse 9, if we go back to 42, he even feels forsaken. He says, why have you forgotten me? And this is a theme with the psalmist often. He feels in these moments of life, in the valley, in in that low spot, God had forsaken him. And not only that, notice the language is a bit stronger, perhaps, in verse 2 of chapter 43. He feels as if the Lord has cast him off. He says, why have you rejected me, O God? His enemies surround him. We see that in verse 9. We see it in verses 1 and 2 in chapter 43. So he's faced with all sorts of difficulty. And where is he going to go? He has to go to the only source that's going to revive his soul. It's the hope in God. So that's a bit of the setting. The theme is clear, isn't it? The theme is clear. The theme is hope in God. And what I'd said before is that the psalmist is involved in self-counseling. And self-counseling is absolutely necessary at times. The psalmist must remind himself of these truths. And that's where we all find ourselves at times. It's not as if we don't know the truth. We have to remind ourselves of the truth. And then there's a challenge for us, if you will. And it's really this. The challenge is this, that we need to find hope in a satisfying relationship with God when we're faced with sort of these desert moments in life. In these desert moments in life, we may feel like the psalmist, and if we can't find satisfaction in God, then we will find ourselves remaining in despair and mourning. And maybe even like some of these poor police officers that feel like uh, there is no hope, there is no future. But we know there's a future for us. It is guaranteed. It is absolute. And this is what we have to remind our soul of. And you hear about, even recently, it burdens my heart to hear about men who have been involved in ministry for years, and, and they have been giving themselves to other people, worship, a worship leader recently, someone else that was a minister of God, and then they take their life. How is that possible? At some point in time, they stop reminding themselves of their hope. At some point in time, others around them were not encouraging them in their hope and reminding them of their hope. Now, there may be some, and I'll make this statement, I make no particular uh, uh, pronouncement on a person, but some that may take that that tragic step may not truly know the Lord. They just didn't know the Lord. They were around Christianity, they enjoyed it, they served, but they didn't know the Lord. And there are others that I believe that may get to that point because they feel like in Elijah, he says, what is my life? I want to die. And they actually take the next step. Because think with me for a moment. How can a prophet of God, one of the great prophets of God, even utter something like that? Why would Elijah even say that he wanted to die? Why would he even have those feelings? 
Why shouldn't Elijah just pick himself up by his bootstraps and say, Lord, I know who you are. I know your history. I reject that sort of thinking. But he didn't. And in part because James says he was a man just like us. And that moment of weakness, it came forth. Now, just briefly, we only looked at verses 1 and 2 last week in our first heading, Hope and Desiring God's Presence, which we see. And let's just dive into the next major point, Hope and Desiring God's Presence. We saw the intensity of his desire, which was verse 1, the image of a panting deer, as the deer pants for the water brooks. That is, um, I'm dehydrated spiritually, Lord, I pant for you, I desire you, and only you can satisfy. And then there's the idea of the image of a thirsty soul. We see that in the second part of the verse, my soul pants for you, O God. And then we noted thirdly, even from last week, that the object of his thirst was the living God. And it made sense that it would be the living God for several reasons, because as a living God, he is the ultimate source of life itself. We see scriptures that refer to God as the living God, as opposed to these false gods of the world that can offer no hope. Uh, they, as a matter of fact, it creates just the opposite. We all know that there's certain things that we can drink that actually truly don't quench our thirst. They actually create more thirst in us. Um, and that's why sometimes there's certain, it's interesting, and I won't get into it in detail, um, how certain things can be marketed as a thirst quencher, and it's actually just the opposite. It creates more thirst. And so the world creates more thirst. When, when a person seeks to satisfy something that's spiritual with things that are unspiritual, they'll find themselves thirsting more. And that's why some of us who may have spent some time in the world, as we strove for the things in the world, we found ourselves still thirsty. Why? because we're spiritual beings and we need a spiritual drink. And the living God provides that drink. But here is, we want to pick up here about another observation. There's a third observation we should see in this text. Look at verse 3, the emotional stress of his soul. Notice the emotional stress of his soul. He says here in verse 3, my tears have been my food day and night. I mean, the situation that the psalmist face is driven into tears. And they, they represent sort of the anguish that he's feeling over his spiritual life that has been drained away from him. And, and what sort of tears is he shedding, if you will? Maybe we can create some categories for them. One might be some people, if we think about them and their life and where they are, and they're in a moment of life, some people shed tears of despair, tears of despair. I mean, they feel there is no hope. Um, and I've talked with people over the years in counseling, and they will say, I can't trust God because it won't do any good. Literally, someone's saying that it won't do any good. And what they're saying in that moment, though, is that I won't trust God because I don't believe him in this moment. It's not that you can't. You can. You can make a decision. Though it be hard. And sometimes in counseling, and really often in counseling, what you're trying to do is walk with someone through their valley sometimes. Someone asked me a question at this event last night as we, um, they came up to me and asked me a very um, 
It was a sensitive matter. And they said, what do we do in this situation? And I'll share it with you because I just thought it so that maybe you can understand how I process some of these things. And the question came up about abortion. And uh, what about a circumstance where someone has been taken advantage of and now they're pregnant? What, how do we counsel that person in it? How do you walk them through that? And I began to give an answer. I was sitting on the couch and I said, oh, let's, let's, go, let's step over here and talk about that a little bit more. And they said, what if the, person, what if the young lady was this age? And I thought, first of all, incredibly, incredibly sensitive. Incredibly sensitive. But what we have to do is we have to go back to what we believe about life. And we can't build, have, try to correct one tragedy with another tragedy. You can't. Now you have to walk with that family through it and that young lady through it and be there as much as you can be. And please, please, and I said to them, it's not that they were resisting it. I was just saying, this is how you should think through it. Please be careful of your tone when you communicate that to them. Because there are people, and I run into some of these people sometimes, uh, their idea of giving hope is to make sure that they stand by the truth. And I believe in standing by the truth. Do you believe that? <laughs> Absolutely, I do. I, I, I have no problem with standing by the truth. The church is the pillar and protector of the truth. I'm um, absolutely unashamed of preaching the truth, but I also know we need to speak the truth in what? In love. And there's some people that would say, and I said, please don't go to a young lady like that or to a family like that. And what if they were actually thinking about the abortion? Don't start off rebuking them. How dare you even think about such a thing? Don't you know what God has given life? And the scripture says this. How about for a moment say, boy, that's a hard decision. But I don't think you believe it's the right decision. And there's already pain here now. Don't add pain to more pain. What she may experience and later on have to deal with emotionally and psychologically. This is the right thing to do. And there's a way to walk with that, that person through it. There's hope in doing the right thing. You have to believe that God would bless it. And we got into other discussions about sometimes how, sometimes how people in our camp, we're so quick, so quick to rebuke someone over an issue, and you don't walk with people through where they are right now. You know where you want them to be, but this is where they are, and this is a starting point. And you walk with that person. You try to encourage them and give them hope. And sometimes the reality is they may not have much hope, so they have to live off of your energy for a while, your hope, your faith. It is true. You can believe it. This is what we have to do. People sometimes are in despair. And let me say this as well. I have been around the culture enough to know this that sometimes there are people in our circles, and I love our circles. Don't make sure that you misunderstand me. I love our circles, but our circles need to be polished a bit better. In that, there are people in our circles who may be shedding tears of despair, and they feel like if they ever shared it with anyone else, they would be what? You tell me. What do you think? That's right. Ooh. 
We don't do that sort of thing. No, that's, we don't express our way that like that. You're not trusting the Lord when you do that. Let's not have that. That's what can happen in our circle. So you have people who are in despair who would like to share something with you, and they feel that there's no avenue to do it. And so sometimes what they do is they go to other places where people are like, oh, share it with me. Open up your heart to me. We should be the people who are the first to do that. How is it that we can read the word of God and study the word of God and see the word of God and not see people throughout scripture who are hurting and have despair and doubt and difficulty and God and his great compassion and kindness and mercy does what waits on them? Where would you all be? Just answer that question for me. Where would you all be if it were not for the compassion and patience and mercy of God yourself? Oh, my. Oh, my. Then why don't we extend that to other people when they find themselves in this low of life and you can help pull them up? Because there are times when people, they may never, you may never see their tears, but you know inside what's happening. They're shedding them in the inside. So we must do better at this. This is the psalmist, real lives, real people. And sometimes people are just sharing or shedding tears of perplexity. They just don't know why it's happening to them. They're confused. Where is God? How do I respond? And even with the psalmist, why have you rejected me? Why am I mourning? Why is there trouble? We see it throughout the psalmist. And there's this perplexity that the psalmist has, and he has to work his way through it. And at times, they're just tears of discouragement. What is the point of all of this? What is the point of trying? And some get to the point where there are tears of depression. They're stifled physically and emotionally. And this is why we have to hope. Here's another observation. Look at the second part of verse 3. There's a question that stings his soul. So there's an emotional stress of his soul. He's shedding these tears, but there's a question that stings his soul that most likely led to the tears. And what do we see in verse 3, the second part? While they say to me all day long, where is your God? And that's the source. See, if uh, the world can have us question our God, then they've questioned our source. If the world can have us question our God, then they've questioned the living waters. And uh, where do we go? So the psalmist, as he's facing these difficulties, some are saying to him, where is your God? And then the psalmist is in one sense saying, yeah, that's right. Where are you, God? Why have you rejected me, God? Why are my enemies amounting against me, God? And that is the, that is the spiritual, emotional um, turmoil that the world wants us to have, which is to begin to question our God, is it not? We go from here and we leave this campus and we will not receive the encouragement to serve our God. The world wants us to question it. Uh, it's a constant attack against God's people. Notice some, some other texts that say this. Look with me at Psalm 71. Psalm 71. And here in Psalm 71, notice what is communicated here. In verse 1, it says, In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me not be ashamed. 
In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me, incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of salvation to which I may continually come. Pause there for a moment and notice what the psalm is communicating. Notice he says that I may continually come. Why? Because life will come and there will be lows and there will be highs. You are a rock. I can come again and again and again. It's what we said last week. There is this fountain of living waters that is what? It can never go dry. And notice what he says in verse 11 in the psalm. Because now he says in verse 9, do not cast me off in the time of old age. Do not forsake me when my strength fails. And essentially saying, be faithful with me throughout all of my life. For my enemies have spoken against me and those who watch for my life have consulted together saying, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him. For there is no one to deliver. Look, God is not with him. Let's overtake him. Look at Psalm 115. Because so now it goes from perhaps a a particular incident here to now in Psalm 115, it becomes, we might even say, global, if you will. Because in Psalm 115, then in verse 2, it says, why should the nation say, where now is their God? And what the psalmist is saying, no, don't let the nation say that. Be faithful, support me. Make it evident that you are on my side so the nations will never question whether or not you are for me. Because that's what they want to do. Look with me at the book of, look at Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2, verse 17. Joel two seventeen, and it says this. Let the priests, the Lord's ministers, weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they among the people say, where is their God? And you see the same thing in Micah 7. We we won't go there. This consistent pattern that can happen, questioning God, questioning God's support, but Here's the reality. It doesn't always have to be external, does it? And what do I mean by that? Uh, The world may want to question God and whether or not God is supporting us. Sometimes it is internal. We're questioning it ourselves. Just like the psalmist is wondering, God, are you there for me? Are you supporting me? Do you hear me? And this is where we have to remember and say to ourselves, I serve a sufficient Savior. I was... um, talking with some men recently, I actually was in one of my classes about prayer. And I was sharing with them, I said, yeah, pray for me. In a couple of weeks in the evening service, I'm going to, they asked me to preach on prayer. And I've been trying to get my hands around it and edit it down and edit it down and edit it down. Literally, really, I, I do ask you to pray for me. Uh, it's, it's probably one of the most difficult things I'm having to do. Um, to say, okay, I have about 50 minutes or 55 minutes to do this. Uh, And we're talking about prayer and the reality of prayer and coming before the throne of grace. And I said, isn't it interesting? A part of the reason that we don't pray is that we don't appreciate the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I said, what do you mean by that? We don't appreciate the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Question, I ask you, and you can respond to me. Um, When Hebrews tells us, 
that we can come boldly before the throne of grace. How do we gain bold access to the throne of grace? Someone tell me, how is that possible? Through Jesus Christ. Because what was torn? The veil is torn. And now we have access, but he says, what? Bold access. And it's not because of anything in myself. It's not because of my righteousness. That is a statement of the monumental transformation that takes place only in our lives, but also in our relationship to Jesus Christ. Now I can come boldly before the throne of grace. Now, when you come boldly before the throne of grace, you also come humbly and submit your prayer requests according to that which is consistent with the name of Jesus Christ, right? It is not like these charlatans want to tell us, come boldly to the throne of grace, demand the job. Come boldly to the throne of grace, demand the promotion. No, this is madness. I come boldly to the throne of grace because Jesus Christ has made a way. And just as I, just yesterday, that image is in my head, I took this little lamb and I looked at it and I slit its throat. And this blood came out. That was a reality. Jesus Christ bled for us. We are redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Spilled for us. Precious blood, as Peter says. Precious life, as Peter says. And now this precious blood, this precious life that now has been given for us, gives us access to the throne of grace. You say, what does that have to do with hope? This is interconnected. This is a reality that here is hope. Do you know that one day when your life expires, there's something waiting on you? It's interconnected. And you can have hope in this life. That the God of life is ordering your life for his glory. Indeed. Go back with me. And and it really, what I just said, almost in one sense communicates this fifth observation. Look at verses four and five. He says what? These things I remember and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession in the house of God with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. He has to remember that there is a future. He remembers how he used to have unabated access to worshiping the Lord, and something has happened now that prevents that. So he thinks about those times and he remembers those times. And we must do the same, learn how to remember. Let me close with some thoughts. And it says, hope in the living God because of what? Let me just give you several things to go home with. Number one, it's this. He is always accessible, always accessible. Psalm 121, he neither sleeps nor slumbers. That is a wonderful reality. Don't get away from that that basic reality that your God is always accessible to you. Um, there are those counselors for those dear police officers who feel like they're at the point of hopelessness. 
they're not always accessible. You as a counselor, you're not always accessible. You as a friend, you're not always accessible. As a spouse, you're not always accessible. As a minister, you're not always accessible. The Lord is. Number two, God's sovereign plan is unfolding. That is, God's sovereign plan is unfolding. We may not know what it is. In this moment, we may find ourselves in a valley, but I'm not sure how long I'll stay here, but I know a sovereign plan is unfolding. God may never let me know the why of it, but I know that a sovereign God is in control. If you think that somehow gaining hope is knowing why it's happening, you may never gain hope. You may never gain hope. And that's why, this, why Paul writes, and we know we have to be resolved. And then why do we hope in the living God? Because he is the source of life. And I won't go there, but Psalm 36, verses 7 through 10. Even in Joel, it's the animals are even panting to the Lord, just like it says the deer pants for the water brooks. Even the an animals are panting for the Lord, knowing that there's sustenance comes from him. So we can hope in him. But our hope has to be developed. That is, we have to grow in, our, in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, we'll learn to hope in those moments when we find ourselves in a low. Father, we thank you for your grace you give us. We would ask that you bless the words, help us all to hope. And sometimes we need to hear things like this. We may say, I'm, I don't feel discouraged at all. I'm, I'm very encouraged. I'm very hopeful. But there are others around you who may not be that way. And that's just how the body of Christ works together, that we can give hope to others and point them to hope, encourage them in their hope. And so let us listen, not first for ourselves, but also listen for others. And, and also listen for ourselves, because right now we may be on a mountaintop, but tomorrow may be a valley that we can prepare for it. In Christ's name, amen.